Welcome to the Human Capital Innovations Podcast, your go-to source for personal, professional, and organizational growth and development. We hope you tune in often for all things people management, organizational development and change, organizational leadership, and social impact related. Maximize your personal and organizational potential with Human Capital Innovations Podcast. Welcome to the Human Capital Innovations Podcast. In this HCI podcast episode, I talk with Vibhas Radhanji about leadership development and succession planning. Ribhas Ratanji, welcome to the Human Capital Innovations Podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me, John. Yeah, I am so excited to have the chance to chat with you. Such a fascinating background uh, and career that you've had and working in the realm of people management, organizational culture, uh, and all of these areas, uh, just so, so important. And I'm excited to have a discussion with you today, more specifically about leadership development and succession planning your role with Gallup and other work that you've done. Um, as we get started, I just wanted to share your bio with everyone. Uh, Vibhas Ratanji is a senior practice expert with Gallup based in Gallup's Irvine, California office. Vibhas specializes in organizational development, culture change, and executive level engagement strategies, including strengths-based leadership and succession management. Vibhas is also an executive coach and a leadership consultant to senior executives and CEOs. Vibhas works extensively in the healthcare, retail, and finance services sectors. Vibhas serves as the lead consultant to many of Gallup's top clients in the, U- the US, Europe, Asian Pacific, and Middle East regions. Since joining Gallup in 2001, he has worked in Gallup's New Delhi, Bangkok, Singapore, and Irvine, California offices. Uh, again, amazing uh, resume, uh, amazing uh, work, uh, experience that you have and really your your practitioner expertise around organizational development, uh, organizational cultures, and everything related to leadership development and succession planning. I, it's just going to be an awesome discussion today. Uh, before we launch into the conversation, anything else you would like to add by way of uh, background, personal context, anything like that? Thank you very much, John, for the introduction. Um, I'd say in addition to what you mentioned, I'm really um, an avid, I guess, uh, a student and a researcher of global leadership, uh, partly from my own experience, because I've worked in so many different cultures that gave me kind of the perspective around what it takes to navigate this increasingly global world. So that's a big kind of a hot topic for me. That's something I love to read about. Um, Globalization is, of course, a force that will never die. That's something that's going to be kind of interesting even in the future, no matter what kind of boundaries are being put uh, you know, in front of us, but the world will get flatter. And leaders' role there and an incredible role that they play is going to be increasingly important. Yeah, I agree. I, you know, I, I haven't had as much international experience as you uh, over as many years, but I, I have traveled extensively and I've worked in a variety of countries for shorter periods of time. Um, I just see the world as an increasingly interconnected place. Um, we need to learn 
better how to navigate those complexities and intercultural um, dialogues and, and differences and leveraging different perspectives. You know, all of that comes into global leadership. And it's, it's, it's a hard thing, um, especially if someone hasn't had those types of experiences, uh, to really help someone shift their mindset to start developing the, the skills, the, the competencies, and the capabilities to be able to be effective in a global, um, uh, amidst a, a shifting global landscape, I think. Um, so very, very good, very good. Now, I know you've done a lot of work. Um, you've published a lot. You've spoken a lot about leadership development and succession planning. Um, what have been some of yours and Gallup's most significant discoveries related to those topics? Yeah. So Gallup, um, we've been researching uh, human behavior for, for many years, for decades. And specifically, when you think about leadership, we've done a study of more than 50,000 high-performing leaders to try to understand what makes leadership and leaders successful. And I think because we're a research-based consulting firm, the elegance of a formula works best. So all the, all the research we've done kind of boils down to a very simple formula that I'll share with you, which is, and this is the formula, if you were to think about leadership performance, it's talent or leadership talent. We think that's the most critical part. And when you think about talent, that's your innate talent for leadership. If you're able to discover that, that's the first step. Multiplied by two components, experiences and focused development. Now the experiences part is important because it's not numbers of years of experience, it's kind of those breakthrough experiences that leaders need to be successful. So you might have had 15 to 20 years of experience, but have you really been tested? Have you really been stress tested? Have you well, been- and I, I just thought I would add in there, it's something I say often to people, but just because someone has 10 or 20 years of experience doesn't mean it was good experience. Exactly. It, it, it doesn't mean they were effective leaders. It doesn't mean they handled things well. Um, it's just an arbitrary um, number, you know, and, and there is wisdom that can come with experience. I'm not saying, you know, that, that we shouldn't value experience, but, but we need to dig a little deeper, go below the surface level. And, and, you know, just saying that I have, you know, 5, 10, 15, 20 years of experience doesn't really mean anything to me in and of itself. Yeah, it's interesting. I think a uh, number of years of experience, pedigree, I mean, those are things that are important, but those, those are not the things that define leaders. And we're all familiar with the 70, 20, 10, right? 10% classroom, 20% coaching, 70% what they call experiences. But in my work with a lot of organizations, when I try to kind of understand, when you say experiences for your leaders, what do you mean? Because that's such a big part of development. In many cases, people say, well, you know, job rotation. <laughs> you know, that's not a key experience. That's not, I, I call it a crucible moment, a crucible moment that shapes who you are, that kind of, reorients your leadership style. Those are the ones that we need to be really focused on. And in all my research, that's what I'm trying to do is trying to understand what those key experiences are. And we've identified quite a few, like a stretch assignment, for example, or being put into an expat position and uh, having to kind of navigate that cultural adversity that comes with it. These are things that need more focus uh, rather than the, let's just put leaders in a classroom. I mean, it's, it's interesting. I look at some estimates on how much money is spent on leadership development in the US alone. And the numbers are anywhere between $14 billion and $50 billion. A lot of that is just, let's just put leaders in classrooms. But I, our view is when we say talent is a multiplier, that's the first thing you gotta get right. Then give leaders the right kind of experiences that stretch their thinking. And then you can provide focused development, whether that's classroom, but also coaching and mentoring. 
So this formula we've consistently used and applied with a lot of organizations to great success, because it's more of a comprehensive way of looking at leadership, a holistic way of looking at leadership development and succession management rather than just being focused on, you know, more classrooms and more training. Yeah, and I mean, you've already obviously referred to the classroom element and perhaps that's not the best way to focus all of our attention. Um, what are some of the other pitfalls that you've seen in organizations where, um, where leadership development, succession planning isn't working? Yeah, it's also about who gets this experience. I think that's a critical one. So when you think about a lot of organizations who have a hypo, you know, high potential talent pool and those are the ones that get uh, a lot of focus. My issue perhaps is I think leadership development needs to be democratized, which essentially means that you need to be less elitist about who gets this development opportunity, who is part of your talent pool. In most of the work I've done, I've seen this talent pool mainly comprises of people from the first three levels of the organization or people in the headquarters, but you've got great operational talent. So I think organizations need to look deeper to look for that kind of talent. So I think that's a big, big kind of a barrier, if you may, for most organizations. There are a lot of diamonds in the rough who are, who are hiding in parts of the organization that senior executives in kind of the ivory towers perhaps don't have visibility. So a, a leadership program should be deep. Yeah, uh, and, and that's to the top. Yeah, and that, well, that, that comes, by to, comes back to what we were just talking about in terms of pedigree, in terms of years of experience. I mean, those can, indicate certain things, but, you know, in terms of what really matters, they don't really provide good um, explanatory power, right? In terms of actually who's going to end up wanting to pursue those paths and who's going to be effective in along those paths. Uh, and there's just so many examples of people that had fantastic pedigrees. They had, you know, the very stellar resume with all of the, the types of tiered experiences along the way. And they, but they just weren't effective. Um, now, hands off to those individuals for being able to navigate a successful career, but that doesn't mean they've navigated successful leadership. And the diamonds in the rough are there, but unless we're looking for them, unless we're seeking out those who have the, the particular skills, the capabilities that lend themselves to effective, you know, empowering leadership, then we're, we're going to leave a lot of, of uh, human capital on the table, so to speak. And if, if we don't reach out and try to give those individuals those types of opportunities, they're not going to stick around usually. They're, they're going to end up going off, either starting their own business or going to a competitor, you know, doing something else over time because they're not being seen, they're not being valued uh, for their potential. I think, the, the, I think a great word that you use is explanatory. And I'd use another word, predictive. So what you're really looking for is predictive indicators of talent. But unfortunately, what I see in a lot of organizations is this evaluation itself is riddled with bias. So a lot of it is, for example, a competency assessment. Not even a 360 assessment. Sometimes it tends to be a 90 degree or a 180 degree assessment. So it's essentially you're relying on the, the manager's evaluation of a leader. But there's a lot of bias that comes with it. You know, so I think the right kind of talent metrics are ones that are predictive of success, that are well-researched, and not just based on somebody's gut feel about who is or who is not a great leader. There's a lot of science that goes behind talent selection, assessment, and development that a lot of organizations need to apply to their work. Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. Um, predictive 
analytics, people analytics will allow us to, to have a lot of those insights so that, so that we're not relying, like you said, on our gut, which really, you know, I, I struggle with that. I struggle with the idea of relying on your gut um, because often what that really ends up meaning is you're allowing your implicit biases to guide and direct your decision-making, which isn't what we want. Now, I, I, I don't mean to say that we should be completely disconnected from our feelings and that we should only be purely analytical, but we also need to be careful about being over-reliant on our feelings about an individual because those biases are there and we don't even know it. That's, that's what an implicit bias is. So we have to be super, super careful. Um, but if, if, we can, if we can match the two, if we can match the analytical approach, um, you know, using people analytics, um, uh, predictive analytics, uh, along with um, more qualitative approaches, you know, relationship building, um, where we can get to know our people better, you know, then we, we really can have really key insights into what types of activities and approaches are going to be most effective and also who, who we can target, <clears throat> excuse me, who we can target and who will benefit the most from these opportunities. Um, and, and something else you said that I think is really important too is we, we can't just arbitrarily, you know, think we have a great, you know, I'm a leader, I'm a CEO or I'm an executive and I say, hey, I read this great management book. It has really great insights. I'm going to offer leadership development and have everyone read this book and we're going to talk about it or we're going to do some trainings on it. Those types of leadership development programs pop up all over the place all the time. And most of the time, they don't accomplish anything um, other than, you know, having some interesting discussions. And so you, you have to be much more focused, much more targeted. You have to have clear objectives. You have to have defined desired outcomes. You need to assess, you know, all that kind of stuff has to build into this. Yeah. I've done a lot of work with executive teams and boards around doing talent reviews and selection work for them for the high potential. It surprises me every time. Uh, it actually, it doesn't surprise me how predictably irrational we are. So it's kind of the way humans are engineered in, the, in a way. So we are always looking at, Danny Kahneman talks about it as system one and system two. Uh, you know, are you applying system one thinking, which is fast and quick, or system two, which is more deliberate, and so on. In most of the cases, we are applying system one thinking. I mean, if, if you're a if you're a Trekkie, it's the Captain Kirk versus the Spock kind of way of thinking. Is it like emotion or cold logic? But I think what what's important is there's a combination of both. That's that's really important. That you're really being applying not not just using mental shortcuts to evaluate an individual based on prior performance. Uh, for example, you might not just look at a, a leader and say, well, look at their performance of the last three years. Fantastic. This one is a really good leader. I'm pretty sure I've developed that person myself, the confirmation bias. You know? and, and that's what I'm going to invest in this individual without knowing that the new realities of work, the new realities of business might be very, very different. So de-biasing the talent review to start with is a huge initiative for organizations because some of these companies have had these kind of talent reviews for a really long time where it's a conversation that happens with the executive team and the 30th floor of the headquarters in a closed door uh, closed door meeting and you kind of just pass judgment on a few individuals without really understanding you know the talent and the potential and the key experiences that the individual gets that's the first step for organizations to be focused on
I'm, I'm curious what you think about more about, let's talk more about biases mm -hmm. um, and selection decisions. You, you've written a lot about that. We were just talking about implicit bias a little bit. Um, they definitely can shape selection decisions. So tell us more about biases and what organizations can do to deal with those to both, both in selection processes, but also in, in identifying individuals for potential leadership development and succession planning approaches. Yeah. So in my research, we've, I've identified a range of biases that kind of weaken leadership selection and, and there are quite a few. I mean, the confirmation bias is the one we talked about where you're actually looking at an individual a le potential leader and you're saying, well, does he have the qualities that I have? So that's the confirmation bias. There's a really interesting bias that I have seen at play. And it's called the IKEA bias, and you know, IKEA. Uh, and it's very, very interesting. So basically the bias is that you have more confidence in something that you've built yourself. So if you've built an IKEA bench or a cupboard, if you've done it yourself, you know, you'll have more confidence that it's stable and sturdy, even though it's kind of things out of place and so on. It's the same thing that applies in leadership selection. I have more confidence in somebody who, have, who I have personally groomed, who I've actually invested my time and energy, blood, sweat and toil in. So automatically that's the person that becomes the one for me. Now that happens a lot in these talent reviews where you've got executives with their favorite sons and daughters, you know, like this is the person who needs to move forward. That's where you need to kind of come in and ask almost like counterintuitive questions around those. I have uh, one leader I worked with who during these talent reviews actually had the CFO sit in and said, you're the contradictor in chief. So essentially everything we say, you have to contradict it and we need to go in and do kind of a, you know, pre-mortem <laughs> around whatever they're saying. So there are ways in which you can actually start. I'm saying de-biasing because you can't really completely eliminate bias because it's the fabric of human behavior. You know, you can't eliminate bias, but there's a lot you can do to kind of de-bias. That goes beyond, I think, kind of um, unconscious bias training. You know, I mean, there's a lot of that. And with the current kind of environment and the focus on DEI, you know, I've, I've, I've always seen that leaders who go through unconscious bias training get very good at spotting the bias in other people, <laughs> not necessarily themselves as much. So it's that kind of very focused work that you need to do with leaders through executive coaching, really holding a mirror up to them, really having them not kind of get into a room and have group think take over, uh, uh, but to actually objectively assess talent in a very predictive way. Once you do that, you're slowly trying to kind of de-bias the system. It won't be fully de-biased, but at least it's, it's, it's better than the alternative, which is just a free for all. You know, anybody can choose anyone and we just have to fit, fill these 50 high potential seats and that's all we're focused on. It requires a lot of structure. There are a lot of biases, in fact, you know, there, and they're absurd biases. I don't know whether you heard about this one, which is that in the US, uh, men who are above six feet, are about 14%. 14% of the US population of men is about six feet and higher. The same number in Fortune 500 company CEOs, 60%. Are we saying there's a correlation between height and leadership? Right, somebody yeah, and that, that, that's such an interesting one because yeah. I've, I've seen people with that bias firsthand and it's, it's, it's been debunked over and over again that height has anything to do with effective leadership. Um, and you probably know this, but the first, U.S. president 
Um, that was the shorter of the two candidates, and and one was George W. George H. W. Bush. Did I get that right? George W. Bush, uh, two thousand. Um, he was the first time that the shorter candidate won. Uh, and so there's just like these 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 biases sitting in the back of our head. Now, obviously, there's more to it than that in, in terms sure, of how yeah. people choose, you know, yeah. or vote in an election. But it is telling, you know, that in the in the history of the country, that was the first time. And I remember being in a meeting. This was probably 20 years ago, maybe 18 years ago. I was in a meeting with a, a leader, and they were talking about candidates for a position, and like 100 percent. He was leaning on the fact that one guy was only like five foot seven and the other guy was like six foot two. He's like, clearly, you know, this one's suited for leadership and this one is not. And I, you know, my, my mind goes, I have like this little bit of an explosion in my head as I'm thinking, what in the world are you doing? Um, so those kinds of silly biases definitely do play out even after they get debunked by research uh, for years and years. No, it's mind boggling, but it still exists. I worked with the CEO many years ago who told me he's a very good judge of talent. And I was like, that's great. How do you do it? And he said, I, I shake hands with them. Like how firm the handshake, I'm not kidding. How firm the handshake is tells me whether he's a strong leader or not. So no matter what kind of systems you put in place, no matter what kind of uh, predictive assessments as well you put in place, at the end of the day, you're working with the biases with the executive team right at that top. And like I said, yeah. holding up a mirror, right? deal with your own biases first. Yeah. Uh, that's going to be key. Yeah. I, I, another leader that I have been associated with who is 100% convinced, like he, he also feels like he knows how to um, find top talent and assess that. And his, his, his uh, guidepost is the question in his mind, who would I enjoy camping with for the weekend? Who, who would I be able to get along with the best camping for the weekend? Uh, and that comes back to what you were saying about confirmation bias um, like that, so many red flags go off in my mind when someone says something like that, yeah. um, because you don't necessarily want someone, I mean, it's nice to be able to get along with people, sure, but like, you don't need to be buddies with the person, and you don't need someone who's just like you to, to in fact, you don't want someone who's just like you, and, you know, so I think we have all of these, particularly for people who aren't particularly trained in leadership, but they find themselves moving into leadership roles. Um, then they, they lean on these types of shortcuts, thinking that they have all this wisdom, but really they're just allowing their biases to dictate. Yeah, it's system one thinking. You're kind of, you're even kind of ignoring kind of contrary evidence, even if it's in front of you. You sometimes go ahead and say, well, I feel it in my gut, <laughs> you know? So that's the one. So I do a lot of executive coaching with CEOs besides doing talent reviews to kind of work with CEOs on how they can actually really look at what a, what a what a great executive team looks like. Who's a great fit from a talent point of view for each of these mission critical roles that you have in the organization. That's going to be key. Yeah, yeah. So in, our, in the final five minutes or so that we have, um, I thought maybe we could shift a little bit and talk a little bit more about global mindset. Um, the importance of global mindset. We, we talked a little bit about it at the beginning. Um, but we are in an increasingly globalized world, interconnected world, uh, amidst COVID even, like it seems like the barriers are broken down even more because nobody's traveling. You're just hopping on a Zoom call with people from all over the world. Um, in some ways that's really great because the, the interconnectivity is just so enhanced and the constant communication is the opportunity at least is there. 
So how do we increase our global competencies, our global mindset, and why is that important for leaders? Yeah, so um, well, I did a bit of research um, um, a few years ago in Southeast Asia. I was based in Singapore at that time, and you know, something I wrote for the Harvard Business Review around these key experiences that are required to be successful in Asia, not necessarily uh, for an Asian leader to succeed, but anybody who is kind of navigating the complexity of Asia. Uh, and one of the things that came and emerged was that early global experiences are key. And global experiences are not just, you know, working with a project team, being on conference calls. It's, uh, you know, boots on the ground kind of experience. Even if it's for two months or three months or six months, it doesn't have to be an expat assignment. That's critical. And whenever we've kind of looked at those who've had that early experience, have a greater appreciation for diversity. Uh, so that, that's, that's really very important. And I work with a lot of uh, executives in, in the US now. I've spent about 15 years in Asia, kind of working in Singapore and Thailand and so on, uh, who might not necessarily work with uh, you know, people in other countries or offices in other countries and so on. That doesn't mean that they don't need a global mindset. A global mindset is not only for a global expat, it's for everyone because it's an increasingly hyper-connected world. So I really feel that globalization and global perspective and that diversity that goes with that is a key component for leadership development anywhere. And I, and I talk about this a lot. One company that I admire a lot is Alibaba. Uh, when you think about that, when you think about the leadership curriculum, it's really focused on globalization. So they're really building global leaders. And I think organizations, or for that matter, countries are not focused on that early experience and really sensitive training around global viewpoints and beliefs and perceptions are, are going to fail, are going to lose. As I mentioned earlier, no matter what kind of barriers are put in front of globalization, it's a force that will never die. It needs to be part of your leadership development curriculum early. And there's early experiences and early exposure to global perspectives, projects, cross-functional projects or global projects that involvement for high potential leaders, millennials, who anyway kind of associate themselves as global citizens. Uh, they want that kind of exposure. That is, if it's not part of your, of your curriculum from a leadership point of view, then you're missing out on a lot uh, of performance potential in the future. Yeah, I completely agree. Uh, I think it's so essential. Hopefully, rather than being afraid of these global forces, um, and kind of re-entrenching towards nationalism and those sorts of things. Hopefully we can learn to navigate the complexities, the, the messiness, and just recognize, you know, that, that this, it is what it is. Uh, regardless of your own, like, particular political or economic, social views around globalization, man, I don't see it going away either. I, uh, barring some major catastrophic global, you know, events, I, you know, we're, 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 it's here and it's not going away. And, and we need to learn how to better manage within it and lead within it and, and leverage the opportunities that globalization provides and a global mindset provides. So I, I think that's so essential. Well, Vipas, it's been a pleasure talking with you today. Uh, so, so much tremendous background and research um, in, in these areas that we've been discussing. Uh, before we close, I do want to uh, give you a chance to share with listeners, you know, how they can get connected with you, find out more about what you're doing, your work at Gallup, and uh, if there's anything else uh, that you want to share just by way of the last word on the topic. 
Yeah, sure. And, and again, thanks for having me on, John. Uh, yeah, you can get in touch with me on LinkedIn or just go to our website, uh, www.gallup.com. We write on these topics almost every week. We have three or four articles that come out on um, topics from talent management to performance management to organizational development to CX. So there's a lot of great content that Gallup's putting out. So I urge you to kind of go check us out on gallup.com. Uh, as a last word, I think, uh, you know, in an in increasingly divisive world where DEI are programs and not behaviors, I think there's such an important element there that we're missing out around the diversity of our talent pool, uh, women in leadership, uh, minority women in leadership. You know, those are things that, those are things that organizations and leaders need to take seriously. You know, I, I always give the example of Xerox where they actually have a very specific uh, rule. They, 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 have, they want 40% of their executive team or leadership team to be women in five years. So you've got to put, your, put goals. Or actually, if you think about the, the Rooney rule, which is the Pittsburgh Steelers chairman, which is essentially you've got to have one minority and one woman for every potential leadership role that's open. These are the kind of very specific strategies, intentional strategies that organizations need to put in place. I just thought I would want to emphasize that because that is going to be very important from a succession planning point of view. It's not just successes, it's that diversity of talent uh, that we need to bring to the table to navigate this pandemic and future pandemics, which I'm sure will come, <laughs> and future disruptions, which I'm sure will come. Yes, absolutely. There's no doubt disruption, disruptions will continue to come in various forms, right? Well, Vipas, it's been a real pleasure talking with you. I appreciate you reaching out I, uh, and having this conversation with me. I, I hope that um, listeners will take the opportunity to check out Vipas, his profile, find out more about what he's doing, his research, and see what he can do for you in, in Gallup. They have so much tremendous um, materials that they put out, uh, some of the most influential works that helped shape my thinking as a student 20 you know, plus years ago, came from Gallup. And I'm really appreciative of that and the continued good work that, that all of you and all of your colleagues are doing. Um, thanks again to everyone for being here. I hope everyone stays healthy and safe, that you can continue to find meaning and purpose at work each and every day. And I hope you all have a great week. Thank you. We are excited about the launch of HCI's new magazine, Human Capital Leadership. Human Capital Leadership is a free interactive e-magazine designed to help individuals, leaders, and organizations find innovative approaches to maximize their human capital potential. We will be publishing issues quarterly in August, November, February, and May. Check out the first issue and let us know what you think. Thanks again for joining us for this episode of the Human Capital Innovations Podcast. I hope you stay healthy and safe and that you have a great week. Check out our new weekly LinkedIn newsletter, Alchemizing Human Capital. 
exploring industry trends via original research and interviews with executives and thought leaders from across the globe. We look forward to having you join us.